Welcome to Antitrust Code by Concurrence. Concurrence is the leading antitrust database with over 30,000 articles on competition law. Concurrence is also the largest network of antitrust experts with lawyers, economists, enforcers, and academics in 85 countries. By listening to this podcast, you will learn the fundamentals of competition law and hear about the latest antitrust news thanks to our guests, the best experts in the antitrust world. Hello and welcome to the Concurrence, your antitrust podcast. Today, we are speaking to Michael Jacobides, Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at the London Business School, who's also experienced in research looking at platforms and the ecosystems around them. Michael, thank you very much for joining me today. We're going to focus a little bit on mobile ecosystems. So could you start off maybe by telling our audience what makes a mobile ecosystem different to a, if you like, a desktop service? Well, uh, first of all, pleasure to be uh, with you. I think that mobile ecosystems are a little bit of the uh, coming of age in terms of us thinking uh, perhaps afresh about what are the principles of, eco of uh, regulation and competition. Um, if you think about uh, the history of it, if you think about how uh, the thinking about regulation has progressed, we have moved from looking at only individual markets um, and thinking about whether a player is dominant. We had fairly narrow uh, ways of defining the market, thinking about the SNP test, thinking about the principles that underpin all of that. And of course, all that would be uh, uh, legally tested um, to saying once we start moving to different types of products that there are new types of issues. So for instance, there the Polaroid uh, case was one where we said, well, perhaps the main market isn't the point when you make all your money in the aftermarket. Then with the credit cards case, American Express, MasterCard, we started thinking about two-way platforms saying, well, hang on a minute, the way that profit and power is manifested in these markets means that the existing theories of dominance and the remedies that we should seek uh, are not necessarily apt, so we need to push the boundaries. And I think that what's happening now is that you see that uh, the mobile ecosystem is the equivalent to what we have seen in terms of Polaroid, um, uh, and Kodak in terms of um, the uh, credit card market uh, to push our existing understanding of ecosystems because we're of regulation, sorry, in the context of ecosystems, because we see these new things that did not exist. Well, new markets, what the heck are ecosystems? Well, there are these groups of co-specialized providers um, where the um, existence and exertion of power is structured in a different way. Why? Well, because of the way that many things need to come together and they need to come together with some degree of co-specialization in order to give something valuable to the final consumer. Um, the final consumer here wants to consume not only what the phone has to offer, which is it can be connected by the support of a mobile tele telecommunication provider. It offers uh, the possibilities that the handset gives, but also it draws on the applications that other people provide. And this is particularly important because 
uh, there are two things that are happening. On the one hand, you see that there is a much broader set of co-specialized producers than you would have, say, in a traditional computer. And also that the dependencies for them are much more significant. So if you think about your daily use, and I think that the mobile ecosystem is really important because if you look at the way that uh, you spend your life, you are now you have now one device that mediates your relationship between you um, and the rest of the world, which becomes very important. Now it becomes very important, and the reason that we care about it in uh, terms of competition, in terms of antitrust, is that there are some particular uh, platform and ecosystem orchestrators uh, that play a role that is much more significant consequential and potentially abusive than might be the case in the past. So that's the big, big picture. And that's why I think that we really care, or at least should care about what the mobile ecosystem has to tell us about our existing frameworks. And that's the entire discussion that is currently going on in terms of both those who study uh, regulation and antitrust, those who study platforms and ecosystems, and those who are involved in the remedies that are aiming to protect uh, competition. So that's the big picture. And perhaps we can go into um, some more examples. But let me just put a bit of a pause there because we covered quite a bit of ground. You have indeed. Um, one thing I want to come back to, you mentioned quite earlier, a SNP test. Can you explain what exactly that is? The SNP test is the small and non-transient increase in price. So basically, what uh, the way that antitrust worked was fairly traditional and in a way fairly mechanical. So the way that we thought about it is, well, people had been schooled in traditional models of competition. These models of competition took markets. Why? Well, because the world was delimited in given markets. You have the electricity market or you know, marbles or kitchens or services or whatever that might be. And then you're like, well, we need to define the things that uh, are part of that market. And then we see whether a company has a dominant uh, position. As you know from um, uh, microeconomic theory, uh, companies that have a dominant position have got the incentive to have higher prices, perhaps even lower volumes, and find their equilibriums by ensuring that they have anti-competitive markets. And you are exploring the potential anti-competitiveness of their actions by looking at whether, for instance, after merger, there is a SNP, um, uh, a small but non-transient, i.e. not just temporary, increase in the price. And you're like, ah, I saw what happened, increase in, in concentration. I know what competition theory tells me, Prices are going to go up. That's a bad thing for everyone. So as such, the whole exercise in terms of antitrust became fairly mechanic. The reason that we became fairly mechanical was that um, we were able to say, you have to prove beyond reasonable doubt in terms of the technicalities that there is a negative um, externality there. Now, the thing is that in many of uh, these markets, to you know, give you the example that I mentioned when we started moving beyond that, we realized that there could be some connected market. So what was the aftermarket uh, case in terms of um, uh, Kodak, uh, the Kodak case saying, well, Polaroid may not be expensive as a camera, but 
it's bloody expensive when you start thinking about some of the things that you need to buy from them. Or Xerox, for instance, mm -hmm. was not making its money on selling the machines. And you could say, well, look at the machines, they haven't become more expensive. Yeah, but when you've got a dominant position, you make all your money in the after sales or in the things that need to go for the machine. So we said, mm, perhaps we need to start changing our views of what increases the price. And the challenge here, of course, is that in uh, once you start moving in the mobile ecosystems where you have uh, all these things that are happening together and you as a customer enter the mobile ecosystem and you're like, I'm going to use my phone, I'm going to search things, I'm going to buy things. And as I'm looking and searching, I'm generating information about myself. This information about myself is taken advantage of, in particular, by companies like Google and um, Facebook in the past, Meta nowadays. And this would be then monetized because if you look at the revenue streams of all these companies, they were not making money by selling you something. Oh, it was free. You're like, oh my God, how can I speak about a small and non-transitory increase in price? These wonderful people who love humanity are just giving away their product. No, they're not. And they're not wonderful people. I mean, you look at all the gory details that we're finding out. You know, there's a lot of uh, cagey stuff happening behind the scenes. Cagey vis-a-vis the final customer but also caging vis-a-vis the other complementers. And that's mm -hmm. where it starts becoming interesting and that what, what is underpinning some of the uh, both technically complex, but also conceptually much more interesting cases, like the cases in terms of app competition, where the holders in the West, mind you, China is a different story, the holders of these strong bottleneck positions, Google and Apple, are charging 30% to anyone who wants to come under their tent. And guess what? If you're writing an app, you don't have many other choices. So people are saying, hang on a minute, you guys who are making money by selling the information for us, Apple pretends it doesn't, but basically Apple gets a bribe from Google because it says, I don't want to touch your information, but I'm going to be happy to get 12 billion out of Google in order to allow them to do all the dirty work so that I appear to be the innocent party. So this is why the shift from thinking things like SNPs, which might have been the case, again, in very traditional, simple markets that were well delineated, to the markets where monetization itself is a bit more of an open issue, requires a different set of tools. And I think that this is the big struggle that antitrust around the world has right now, because it has a toolkit that is unfortunately not fit for digital purpose. That is something that we have started understanding at around 2019, three big reports that were issued in the EU, in the UK, and the US in terms of digital competition. Then there were a number of laws, including DMA and DSA in Europe, and a number of lawsuits, including landmark uh, lawsuits, like the one that recently uh, has had a number of different variants against uh, Google and also others against um, uh, both uh, Meta um, and Apple that are trying to redress it and the CMA that has taken a more pragmatic approach. But we can perhaps speak about how different authorities are approaching these problems and what that means for society a little later. Well, I, I love, Michael, I think the fact that you're telling uh, consumers to watch out. There's no such thing as a free lunch, essentially. And you did name check Apple and Google. And of course, we know about those in the mobile ecosystem because we think about those app stores. We've got the Google Play Store and we've got the Apple iStore. Are there any other big players out there uh, that 
you know, the average consumer should care about, or indeed many of our listeners who are uh, legal professionals should look to the future in terms of keeping an eye out for big uh, landmark cases that might happen in the future? Well, um, (laughs) your your question is a little bit more complex than um, meets the eye. And the reason is that in order to understand what is important for um, the cases that will come up, are the laws that are emerging and right now and i think that i've been fascinated and you know i was uh, i am i guess primarily a strategy guy but i thought that my um uh, soul will be burning in hell if i only advised companies because i realize there's a huge amount of abusing the system for the companies that are dominant which is why i started looking into uh, the regulatory um, aspect and i think that there is an interest of the regulatory community to revise the way that um, uh, the rules are written but we have not settled onto a new rule book yet. And there are differences in terms of what is considered to be um, a problem. You know, the DMA and the DSA, one of the earliest efforts to codify that, unsurprisingly for something that was continental European in its inspiration is perhaps a little bit more principle based. The Brits, again, unsurprisingly, given the philosophical predispositions, have something that perhaps I'm a little bit more sympathetic uh, to saying, let's take our case by case base. So if you go to the CMA, you're going to see uh, analysis of both the mobile ecosystem and um, the um, advertising um, ecosystem. I think probably the best uh, reads that you can find if you want to edify yourself um, uh, on these settings. And, and let, DMA- me, let me just jump in for our listeners. DSA, Digital Services Act, DMA, Digital Markets Act, uh, the two new big EU flagship uh, acts that are there trying to regulate this space. Um, Come back to the, the Consumer Markets Act. The, 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 there is a difference. I mean, we've seen Brexit. There is. A, if, do you see there's a dividing between what's happening in the EU and what the UK is trying to do? Yes, and I think that, uh, again, I think that this is idealism versus pragmatism. And the problem that I see with the EU is that they're trying to codify something which is essentially a bit of a, um, a way to summarize some recent law cases and then say you shouldn't do all the things that we have already seen are bad. So what have they said? Let me focus on something that I've done a bit of research on also, both in terms of the applied stuff and in terms of the way that we should think about it in principle. Um, the Digital Markets Act says there are a few players that are providing some uh, marketplaces that could be important. Um, and we're going to find some of them that are particularly relevant. And they are particularly relevant, and we should hold them to higher standard. That's not new in the world of antitrust. The idea that if you have a unique position, first of all, you can think about the in extremis, what happens in monopoly, which is you know exactly what happens when someone um, has uh, obligations because of perhaps some of the underlying economics that make it sensible to have monopoly. But on the other hand, with great power should come some responsibility and accountability. Similarly is the idea with things that may have underlying economics that favor concentration, but on the other hand, the same underlying economics mean that you can manipulate the market and that you can make money not only on merit, but also on power and the abuse of power. Mm -hmm. Um, So now the challenge is, how do you look at it? Well, the Europeans said, well, we're going to say that we will look at things that we have had complaints from and we're going to sort of put them together and stitch them together in something that is going to be the principles that should not be violated. Whereas I think that what is happening in uh, the UK and the CMA that I think is a much more productive approach saying, we're going to take a case by case, i.e. sector by sector, uh, a setup, and we're going to say, who may be harmed? What is the problem? 
in which way does, and here's a word that for traditional economics is strange, monetization mm -hmm. affect what the problems are going to be. And by the way, monetization is how you make money. Again, if you think about Google, Google is not selling stuff, but it's making money by the information that it has. Now that everyone has gone absolutely bonkers with um, uh, uh, generative AI and uh, GDP chat and the rest of it, I mean, the problem right now is that um, GDP chat is just a fancy demo. Soon enough, it's going to be monetized. Depending on how it is monetized, it will lead to particular problems. The problem that I see is that the EU approach, which is we will articulate the principles that you should not violate, is something that assumes too much cleverness on the basis of legislators and bureaucrats. You just don't know what problems may exist. And I think that what you should be doing is that you should say, given the current structures, the current monetization, the way that you make money, who may suffer and whom should I protect? And that, I think, is the divide that you've seen between the US um, and the UK. Let me go to a specific example now, because this is something that I think none has really defined well. And, you know, I've, I've tinkered um, a little bit myself. Think, for instance, about what we have said about these big uh, companies that have impact we call them gatekeepers. The EU said more than 65, uh, 6.5 billion um, in terms of revenues or 65 billion, whatever it is in terms of the market capitalization um, and have 100 million people. Basically, we know them. It's the bigs and also they're Americans and we don't like them because we're Europeans. Um, and there's been interesting horse trading of how do you change the rules in order to have the most Americans in the list of the baddies allowing Europeans like booking.com that are being the baddies in places that depend on hotels like Southern Europe uh, and get them off scot-free if you can. And that's where part of the interesting political and economy of regulation can be seen in vivid colors as this situation unfolds. Uh, but rather than looking at things in absolute numbers, I think that what we should do is think about them in terms of what is their relative power, because it may be that even when you have two big gatekeepers, and here you spoke about Google and um, Apple, they could be dangerous, whereas other markets with two big orchestrators, two big gatekeepers, think about, for instance, um, uh, Uber and Lyft, or in Southeast Asia, Grab and Gojek, it's not a problem. So let me just illustrate so that your listeners might understand exactly what you mean. Why am I saying that Apple and Google are gatekeepers? and others aren't necessarily gatekeepers. Well, think about what you do in terms of a phone. You, you, you tend to have only one phone. And because you have one phone, you tend to use one operating system. Yeah. The other thing that is happening is that not only do you have one phone, and i.e. you are stuck in one platform, but the companies that make the phone, Apple in particular, has built a multi-product ecosystem. It has a phone that connects to the watch, that connects to the TV, that connects to your other accounts, and you're just stuck. Why? Again, not because of the phone, interestingly, but because of the way that the phone is embedded in the consumer electronics and now increasingly healthcare, something that big tech companies are trying to flirt with, not always successfully, in order to ensure that you get stuck. So that means that even if Apple has a small percentage of the market, 7%, it still has a massive hold on the companies that are there, which means that it has power over the customers, 
but also over the app developers. Think of an example. Think about a big company. Think about Tinder, right? Which you would say, hey, they have platform external network externalities. They're a big platform. Dating, the biggest, one of the most successful that there is. Now, if, for instance, you are Tinder and you decide that I don't like the fact that Apple is earning 30% from all of the commissions that I get because it's unfair and they are forcing me to buy some services to justify this 30% that I don't like, you could say, you know what? I quit. I only am going to be working with um, Android. Well, the problem is that you're going to lose that 7%. And also that your value proposition is going to be unattractive for the people in Android. Because what? You're going to tell people that have Android that they can't date any of the cute people that have apples? No. So not only do you pro create the problem in the focal market, you can create a problem overall. So this gives you a sense that this is a company that's a gatekeeper and you know some research including my own tries to articulate well what exactly is a keeper how can you look at them and how can you find it because there may be other settings both b2b and b2c where they are strong other companies consider now ride hailing don't have that so even if you have only two companies that compete so imagine that you only have you know um uh, uber and get or free now and long um both uh, the drivers and the riders have on their phone multiple apps. And because they can switch, they are not beholden to that particular gatekeeper. So I think that one of the really interesting questions is how dependent are you? To what extent do these gatekeepers, whether that is a B2B or a B2C setting, has the ability of having power so that you do not have any alternatives. Because if they do, they have de facto the possibility of claiming that, hey, we have the possibility of engaging in abusive um, behavior. And then clearly uh, comes the standard of proof that you also look at particular actions that are anti-competitive. And the constant undermining by a number of the players in the ecosystem to interoperate. Apple is a typical example of saying, oh, my product's going to be safe, so I'm not going to allow people to interoperate. Even for NFTs, non-fungible tokens, I will allow you to only see them. But in my world, you will not have any other functionality means that it is flexing its muscles. And as a society, we need to ensure that we have the rules that are particularly stringent because we will have a world with few gatekeepers for these gatekeepers to be kept into check. I think as a society, we're all still struggling a little bit to come to terms with NFTs. Um, but to pick on a couple of other things, firstly, I would say people without mobile phones in the real world are allowed to date. And to secondly, you describe them as Thank baddies. <laughs> you describe them as baddies, and I appreciate that set to make it more, uh, more en engaging for our audience. Um, but there has been a little bit of discussion uh, between the US and the EU to leave aside uh, other parts of the world, where there has been an accusation that some of the competition cases brought by the European Commission um, have been, to use a phrase, anti-American. There's been a perception that, that that's it's a geopolitical thing. Is it that or is it just that some of these companies that are maybe committing the biggest abuses happen to have arisen out of the very entrepreneurial US ecosystem? Fascinating question. So first of all, 
if you're a company that is being uh, that is facing uh, rules that are tough, of course, you will be shouting bloody murder. And the first thing you're going to say is they hate us because they're European, which may be true, but it is true in as much as in the US, given that Google was the biggest campaign contributor, having surpassed Goldman Sachs, there was no equivalent sympathy. So the Europeans were quicker to react to than the Americans. And the reason is that they said, not only do we see this as a threat because it is abusive, we also see it as a threat because those who abuse are not ours. So there is a geopolitical tinge, but I think that the geopolitical tinge that I would get is what has formed their desire to start changing the rules. Because, you know, the problem, and that's one of the things that Machiavelli wrote about thousands, uh, hundreds of years ago, sorry, uh, is that um, there is uh, usually a very loose opposition, whereas the people that benefit have very strong voices. And that's actually what you see now in Europe, where there is a massive investment from the big tech firms um, in Brussels, uh, everyone sort of cozying um, up with their favorite lobbyists, and I hate to say academics as well, in order to ensure that they make and plead their cases. So there is clearly a geopolitical angle that I think uh, led to the, this is a problem, we have to deal with it. On the other hand, I think that um, it may be a little bit risky to think that this is driving um, the uh, the core of the problem itself, right? So while I think that the sensibilities were driven by the geopolitics, and I think, uh, ironically, uh, the, the biggest geopolitics in terms of technology have come not from the EU, but from the US, and they are much more um, uh, direct than anti-competitive uh, stuff. So um, what you have seen, and I think that that was clear with the Americans, whether it's Democrats or the Republicans, is irrelevant, that were afraid of Huawei's um, uh, sort of strength. And then there was a very clear, well, Huawei is dangerous. So one way or the other, whether it is the network equipment or um, uh, even the phones, um, mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be creating rules. I think the geopolitics is now being played. The US has done that now with green tech very aggressively. We have semiconductors, and I think the aggressive use of these policies. So I think the geopolitics are becoming a very important element in general, and would be very naive to say that the Europeans are the ones that are hardcore geopolitically played. The Americans are much more aggressively. um, uh, And again, the green tech, um, example is uh, interesting um, uh, in terms of its details, but just 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 to 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 think about um, how that works, I think that what you are seeing is that there is a willingness of the different regulators across the Atlantic, and I've sat on uh, panels where people were um, you know people who led regulations on both the U.S. and the EU are interesting to speak and to learn from each other. I don't think that the cases themselves or that the regulators themselves are as geopolitically driven as perhaps you know popular uh, folklore may have it. Yeah. Um, I also think that the burdens of proof are different. Uh, in the EU, I think that there is a greater sensitivity to um, ensuring that the complementers, i.e. not just the final consumers, but the companies that create the apps, the companies that participate in the ecosystems, mind you, it's interesting because we're not speaking about supply chains, we're speaking about ecosystems, which are new types of organizing. We have a bunch of companies that are 
co-specializing, but are not really run by a, a, a central purchaser, um, and whether they are abused. This is something that Europeans cared about for reasons that have to do with you know, the dominance of the Chicago School in the United States in the 70s, and the way that the American courts have interpreted fairly narrowly uh, the consumer welfare. The Americans are starting to move away from that and closer to a European attitude, at least part of SEC. And I think that this is what Lima Khan uh, represents as a change of guard uh, in the SEC. And to some extent, I think uh, Susan Athey will probably have an impact in the DOJ in that regard. Um, you will finally see some cases, like the case in particular of Microsoft's proposed purchase of Activision, where it may be that a European block of the merger may force them to call that off. Is this geopolitics? Well, it may be slightly different ways in which one jurisdiction looks at it, but I think there is a much more interesting sort of one jurisdiction looking at, the, at another. So I really wouldn't pin it down to the fact to that we're playing a geopolitical game, which is being played in areas like semiconductors, national security, and other such sort of regulations, in particular from the US, but the EU sometimes is uh, showing signs of being ready to retaliate, um, and clearly China creating its own sort of other independent world. So a fairly complex story there. And indeed, as those particular cases you're mentioning, Huawei was one, those haven't been uh, implemented. The, the, the geopolitical fight has not really come through competition law, but through other uh, methods and other regulations. So finally, uh, just a brief sort of looking to the future, um, any new policies or changes that we should be looking for, not even necessarily in terms of competition or consumer law, but I'm thinking maybe of the EU AI Act, which could possibly have a big impact on the mobile ecosystems since uh, that we, we carry our own artificial intelligences in our pocket these days. Anything you would say to our listeners that, uh, that you think is going to something that's going to play out in the next 12 to 24 months? Well, I think that before we go to the EU AI Act, where I think there is still a bit of a sort of fog in terms of what exactly will happen. And as you know, these things take a while to be implemented. Now, what we're looking at is the process of implementation and uh, what are the rights and responsibilities of NRAs, the national regulatory agencies, and what is it that happens at the level of the, um, at the commission um, that um, happens in terms of the DMA and the DSA. So there is the question of the implementation because these are not even fully um, sort of um, structured, implemented and uh, at the level of local legislation um, sort of fully adopted. There's parts of them are, parts of them that are not. Um, so I think that I would be looking with interest what happens there and also whether there is the step change that is going to be necessary uh, in terms of the regulators to start being much more sophisticated than they are right now in terms of data and tech. The problem, again, is that regulators are still uh, populated by traditional IO economists who are scratching their heads and struggling um, to oversimplify, and you know that is not to disrespect the work that they are doing and many other fields is very useful um, uh, in terms of uh, the relevance in this digital setting. But I think that the way that power both manifests itself and can be curtailed requires a much greater sophistication in terms of understanding the underlying technology uh, and data science. And I think that there is now an increasing appetite 
for being both more open to um, a, a, a closer, a better understanding of how we can integrate um, a better um, link between AI and data uh, and antitrust and what that's going to look like. I think that there is an interest both from uh, the community that is involved in uh, many of these technologies, some of the advisory companies that are doing that. I think that pre-announcing some uh, will have an event in, in London Business School um, on the 18th of April on that with Keystone and a few others. Um, and um, I think that what I'm fascinated by is work that is going to be looking to complement uh, the legislation and focus on implementation. The big problem that we have now is less the frame of reference and more creating the mechanisms that will be able to both monitor and flesh out things that will have been voted. So I think that this is one of these interesting cases where I would direct the focus of your listeners not only to the uh, substance of the decisions, but also to the mechanisms are, that are going to be implemented by the regulators and the criteria that will gradually emerge. And it's going to be a fascinating few years because it generally calls into question um, the moral culture that we have had in terms of you know, knowing where the tools are going to be gotten because now we need to be a little bit more sophisticated um, in the way that the tools exist, even if we think that we have articulated the principles. Well, thank you very much, Michael Jacobides. A fantastic and fascinating insight there into the big considerations we have with mobile platforms and the mobile ecosystem. I'm sure our listeners will have found that absolutely fascinating. And indeed, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, please tune in to future episodes of Concurrence, your antitrust podcast. You listened to an episode of Antitrust Code by Concurrence. If you want to read more about this topic, check the Concurrence website where you can find all relevant articles. Follow us on Twitter at Competition Laws and join the Concurrence group on LinkedIn to receive updates on our next podcast.